You're listening to What's Contemporary Now, a show about culture, the people, places, and things that together make it up. Today, Zinya Kumar speaks to us about accurate cultural and ethnic representation. To her, these things aren't only empowering, but they're also the way of the future. Sure, you may have seen her front row at zeitgeisty shows like Balenciaga or Miu Miu, but she's also an accredited ecologist and colorism and ethnic representation advocate. We go deep on some pretty epic subject matter from consumer psychology and the politics of beauty, but despite feelings of anger or periodic frustration, she seems to never forget the importance of maintaining optimism along the way. Hi, I'm Zinya Kumar, and I'm speaking about what's contemporary now. Zinya Kumar, you have a myriad of things under your belt as far as academic achievements and a number of other impressive projects. How would you self-identify across that list of accolades that can be found on your resume? I suppose when I think about it, I don't really even think about the entire list that I have. Actually, I don't even acknowledge it, if that makes sense. But I guess the way I've navigated through all of those spaces is I've had these areas of interest that I've always wanted to do. And I've just kind of pursued it in a way where I thought I could create change in that area. So with the environmental stuff, I was really young. And after seeing, I guess, a lot of the poaching, actually, in particular, which is what brought me into the environmental sector, I'd watch poaching documentaries and I'd read about these birds that were being smuggled through Asia into Europe and things like that for pets. And I got really obsessed with it. So I felt like it was something that I need to do. I need to help the animals that can't speak for themselves. So that's how that happened. And then my work with disadvantaged children and the education space just happened naturally because I grew up in a disadvantaged community. I was the first one to go to school and the school I went to was ranked the lowest in the state. And all of the students that I had around me, a lot of them also had like family members that had gone to prison or they just hadn't really had the chance to experience social mobility and that kind of thing. So when I kind of like was able to change the way of my thinking from being very negative to a lot more positive and progressive, I felt like I needed to give back to my community. So I went back and I started to empower the other children there. And that kind of led on to my work with colorism, because as I was working with a lot of these children, I saw the effect that it had on other five-year-olds, actually, because of their skin color. And when they experienced discrimination, but were also disadvantaged, I really felt like it's an all-encompassing issue, that it's socioeconomic, social, and psychological. So I wanted to do something about it. So I wrote a research proposal and then I ended up going to uni to study that. So I feel like the thing that links all of my different areas together is social change. So every time I feel like there's an issue that needs to be addressed or changed, I always feel like that I have to do something about it and I have to do it in a way where I can actually contribute to the conversation and change it. So that usually means for me at like a higher level of education. And how does one manage to tackle that many different subjects with any degree of efficacy? I mean, obviously there's the whole concern of being a Jane of all trades and a master of none, but clearly Mm -hmm. you've been quite impactful in each and every one of those buckets. So how do you go about achieving that degree of focus, given that you're working across so many different things? I think what's really interesting is like we have this historic way of thinking, particularly in the academic space, that every discipline is in isolation of each other. So for example, social impact within, I guess, a sociology would be completely different to environmental impact, completely different to diversity inclusion. But actually what I've realized is that 
the most significant change happens at the intersection of disciplines. And by combining all of these areas together, what you realize is you kind of get this intersectional point of view, which really helps to address and disseminate a lot of these issues. So that's kind of like what I'm trying to work on right now is how we can combine these different areas because environmental issues combine with social issues and social issues also combine with discrimination and, and everything I do, I can find a way to interlink it together. And it interlinks in quite, I guess, a really wonderful synergy. And usually it feels like when I describe these things that they're completely opposites of the spectrum. I guess one of the biggest examples is fashion and science. People think that's completely different opposite ends of the spectrum. But I think there is this wonderful new way of thinking where you can actually use all of these different seemingly opposite spaces and combine them together to create genuine social change in areas that people haven't really thought about accessing. And I feel like the thing that links everything together is consumer psychology and the way people think. No, that's a very fair point. Yeah. And with something like the politics of beauty, I mean, obviously we've seen a great deal of positive change emerge over the past few years in media in terms of representation and diversity that's more accurate as far as its depiction of what's going on in culture. For you, this is no new subject. So how would you describe or break down the general idea of politics of beauty? So the politics of beauty, the idea of it actually came about many years ago. It was when I was undertaking my research in human evolutionary psychology, which is the study of human attraction. And I was running these experiments. So there was three I ran. One was actually looking at fashion models of different races and different sizes. This is long before I was a model. I was looking at the facial hair in men. So um, like clean shaven men, men with five days of stubble, 15 days of growth and two months of growth. And when I say men, the definition we use was heterosexual Caucasian men for that particular study. And we also looked at hair color in women. So like blondes, brunettes and redhead. And if you walk into a room full of blondes and you're a brunette, does that suddenly make you attractive and things like that? One of the most interesting things I found from my beard study was that if you walk into a room and everyone's bearded and you're clean shaven, suddenly your attractiveness hyper increases. So I guess these were the kinds of experiments I was running. And what I realized as I was running them was the perception of beauty that exists in society is so bound to our own internal biases, society and culture. So what was happening was a lot of these scientists who I was working with, which were all males in their 50s and 60s, white, and who had kind of grown up, I guess, in the 70s and 80s. They kind of had this idea of beauty that kind of belonged in that era. And that was coming out in their work. So they'd had these natural biases where they would find a blonde, blue-eyed, large-chested, I guess, narrow-bottomed, Caucasian, European woman extremely attractive. And that kind of bias in the back of their subconscious mind was affecting the way that they would perceive beauty and interpret their scientific results. And then I would see their results get published into scientific papers. Then journalists would kind of pick up those papers and put them into newspapers like Daily Mail or, I don't know, The Telegraph, Time, BBC, and all of that kind of thing. And then sometimes these journalists would misinterpret the results. And what would end up happening is you'd have newspapers saying things like, big lips are attractive in women. And then you'd see those 
newspaper articles were actually sponsored by plastic surgery companies and companies that were doing like cosmetic treatments and things like that. So what I realized was that a beauty and the perception of beauty and the way beauty was kind of being communicated in the public sphere was really biased in that unconscious biases of the researchers were being taken to journalists who then continued those biases. And then those biases were being leveraged by plastic surgery and cosmetic companies. When the reality was the beauty that actually was being researched in those papers wasn't necessarily what the public thought. So for example, one of the papers that was quite big, I guess, five years ago was that big lips are attractive in women. And there was a load of newspaper articles that kind of repeated this. And most females would look at that and read, oh, okay, large lips will make me attractive. And then people would go to their providers and enhance their lips. But then when you actually go back to the source of that scientific paper, what it says is that big lips are only attractive on certain faces with certain features. And that was kind of misinterpreted. So what actually ends up happening is the feature that's being considered socially attractive from a sexual selection point of view. And by sexual selection, I mean like a reproductive point of view was not in alignment, if that makes sense. So actually social culture created its own form of beauty, which they based on pseudoscience and created a completely new idea. But then that idea would affect science again. It's kind of like science creates beauty and then beauty is written into articles in newspapers and things. And then from there, cosmetic companies realize how they can make money and then they change the social beauty ideal because they know they can make people get that particular treatment. And then the entire social beauty chain changes again. It's incredibly fascinating to listen to the breakdown of it from such an academic point of view, because you're reminded of how much autonomic programming goes into the function of society on the daily basis. So based on everything you've just broken down, how would you describe the level of progress that we've achieved within media and the fashion and beauty spaces over the past couple of years. Do you find that there has been progress? Do you think that it's still subjective to the opinions of those who are presenting this information? Or So my opinion of it is a little bit different to what I just described. So this was actually a point that I was talking to some researchers about because a lot of researchers just assume that beauty and the perception of beauty was like socially innate in that it's not controlled, it just shifts slowly. And what I was telling them was that actually, no, you have a couple of people in positions of extreme power. And we know of these people as casting directors. And these people can change an entire social beauty ideal overnight. If they choose someone or something that looks completely different to, I guess, the homogenized ideal that you get from social media and other places. So I guess there's two types of beauty that exists in terms of the way it's created. So the first is the homogenized ideal that people see on a daily basis. So this is more close to home, things like social media and people on TV and things like that. And then you have this secondary idea, which is on the edge of the creation of new ideals. So these are controlled by casting directors. And when they pick people who reflect the older existing ideal over and over again, that definition doesn't really move forward. So back to your question, in terms of beauty progressing in the space, I think it's definitely progressed in terms of its racial definition for people are racially of the Black and Caribbean background. 
But I don't think it's really progressed in terms of South Asia, the Middle East, the Pacific, and even South America. I don't think it, in terms of representation to region, ethnicity, and race, I don't think it's changed at all. I think features wise, we've seen a little bit more shape diversity in terms of like larger noses, which historically you wouldn't really see in any media or fashion, and also body shapes. So sizes have changed as well. But I think beauty still reflects something that exists 20 to 30 years ago where the hierarchies of visibility still remain. So at the top, you have Caucasian European faces and people. And then secondary to that, you have mixed race European faces and people. And then after that, in the third grade, you have monoracial people and faces. And that's divided into two secondary categories. So the first of that is the most numerous in the monoracial category is people who have Caucasian European features. And then secondary to that is people who have non-Caucasian European features. So they look quite similar to the groups of people that represent their community and the way that they evolved based on the environment around them. And I think this is because of the way physiognomy and racial science developed in the mid 1800s to the early 1900s, where they were creating these books based on hierarchies, based on race, features, and skin color. So at the top of those hierarchies was always people who had European features, colors, and faces. And the people at the end of that scale were completely the opposite. And they were kind of referred to as savage and barbarian. There's a really amazing demonstration, actually. I'd send you the picture for this, but in one of these books, what you realize is the casting practices for companies like Disney and old Hollywood actually reflected what a lot of these books had. So they would describe traits, positive traits for those who looked more European and really negative traits for those who looked completely the opposite of the European images they were trying to show. There's a picture of a lady with a dorsal hump, for example, and next to it, it says that she's insincere. And then there's a picture of a lady in this physiognomy book and she's got an upturned nose and it says that she's kind and sincere. And when you see movies like, for example, um, Sleeping Beauty, you realize the characters that were negative characters, the antagonists always reflected the negative traits that were described and the images that went with them. And the positive characters were the ones that were described positive traits. So it was always a racial definition. Sorry, I think that was a monologue, Christopher. (laughs) (laughs) No, but it was good. I think that despite the fact that it was somewhat long-winded, at the end of the day, you're always so on point with how dense the quality of your messaging is. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how large of a role colorism still plays today in the beauty space. I was thinking about this the other day, and I think beauty still has a huge issue of colorism. So what's happening in the world right now is that skin bleaching is rising exponentially in terms of its profitability. And it doesn't seem like there is any way that it's going to stop. And the issue with skin bleaching is what most people don't realize is it's not just a problem that exists outside of the shores of America and Europe. So a lot of anti-aging products that are marketed as anti-aging products in America and Europe are actually shipped to Asia and marketed as skin bleachers. So what's happening is 
the marketing is changing in a lot of these markets, but skin bleaching is not. And then the effect of skin bleaching in terms of the way it affects people socially, psychologically, and economically is still not addressed in the beauty market. So for example, you'll have companies that will continue to sell a product. I guess the, one of the best examples in India is Fair and Lovely. There was a huge uproar of the product and the name, what it stood for, Fair and Lovely. So I think it was during 2021, they decided to change the name from Fair and Lovely to Glow and Lovely because they assumed by changing the euphemism for fair to glow, it was no longer offensive or it wouldn't affect people in the way it was previously affecting them. And, you know, skin bleaching and colorism is a gendered phenomenon. So it affects women far more than it does men. I guess it affects women, people of color, and also trans people as well, because it's an issue that creates hierarchies in society. And when you create a hierarchy based on someone's worth, based on their skin color, that's when the problem arises. In India, for example, with a lot of the studies that I was looking at in terms of the research, I found that each year there was over 10,000 women who were murdered or were forced into committing suicide by their husbands and families. They were bullied because of their skin color. And that's why that was occurring. That's something I guess people don't know. And a lot of these companies that continue to sell these products keep hiding and they don't justify it. They justify selling the products because that's what the market wants. So there's a gap between what the marketing think and what the public really want. And what are some of the ways you think that we could take actionable steps towards creating positive change in the industry with regards to colorism? So I think the ways we can make positive changes and the steps we can go towards them with colorism is, okay, so one, I personally think any skin bleaching product that demonstrates skin becoming lighter in any way or form, especially in Asia, when it's such a historic and gendered issue, they should just be banned outright. Like, I just don't think these products need to exist mm -hmm. because the issues it causes are so much greater than the products. I personally think they should just be removed off the shelves. I think that's the only way to overcome it. And then the second issue is a lot of brands are exploiting this idea of colorism and using the opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of color visibility in advertising to represent progressiveness. But really what it's doing is it just looks performative in terms of the ad wanting to cater and remedy colorism, but they don't actually take into account the other social and psychological issues that come into it. In terms of visibility, I think the way to do it is not to just increase visibility of different colors of people. It's to also increase the different features that go with those colors, because most of the time, featureism and colorism are combined in one. And there's a hierarchy again to do with both. I mean, these are things that I think so many people fail to realize or even be aware of only because they're not broadly applicable to everyone. And so that's why I think it's really important to be having this conversation. I think there's a degree of privilege that keeps most people unaware of these points. And while we see progress at the end of the day, I think it's still quite prescriptive and to your point, in some cases, even performative. So that's why I was curious as to whether or not you thought there were 
steps that we could actively take. Obviously, of course, removing products such as those you've mentioned is key, but also what does that look like, you know, as an industry, as a media strategy in terms of brands, again, accurately depicting what's going on in culture today. And so according to your perspective, you feel as though it's still quite tokenistic and not accurately reflecting anything. Yes. Yes. I think you nailed it on the head there in kind of like 10 seconds. (laughs) (laughs) In all fairness, the questions are supposed to be shorter than your answers. I'd hope so. You know, Uh, I can't answer them short. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, you know, you also have a unique position in this conversation because you're on both sides of it, right? You're academically informed. You're actively involved in creating change across a number of the things that we're talking about today, but you're also in front of the camera. So how do you navigate that dichotomy of your experience? I think it's really wonderful because I often find that everything kind of informs each other. So actually how I kind of got really interested in colorism was because I realized behind the camera, the people running it, particularly in India at the time, they were all from upper caste, upper class Indians who were all kind of already light skinned. And later on, when I did research on the topic, I realized that actually upper caste and upper class light skinned people, and I don't mean them all at one. I mean, I mean like interchangeably. So they could be upper caste, they could be light skinned, or they could be upper class people as well. They kind of didn't acknowledge it as an issue. Like, so they they didn't think colorism existed. So I was like, okay, this is really interesting. So there's a level of privilege that is stopping people from seeing the issue. So what I realized was that you had this level of privilege behind the camera. And then Mm -hmm. in front of the camera, we're in the fashion space at the time. I would see in India in particular, the people that were selecting um, people for these ad campaigns kind of didn't really care that the people that they were selecting didn't even relate to the public. So at the time there was a really big push for like Russian models, which they would dye their hair black and then they'd put them in a sari so that people would be like, oh, look, this is an Indian tick box done, like job done and let's go home now and party. So it was kind of like you'd see that and then you'd have this academic side, which made you realize, hang on a minute, everything that these people are doing, which is quite tokenistic, performative and front end is actually having huge economic, social and psychological effects for hundreds of millions of people every single day. So what I realized was there has to be a way where, you know, fashion and the way we depict people can be used for positive change because it's not okay that five-year-olds in the world are looking at these images and having low self-esteem because of them. That's the other thing that I wanted to pick your brain about is the fact that you are so informed. And as we know, ignorance is truly bliss. So the fact that you're still able to view the fashion industry as a vehicle for positive change rather than be disheartened or defeated by the amount of change that still needs to happen. What do you credit for having that perspective? What is it that fuels your optimism? I guess a lot of my experiences growing up and my history has really helped me keep a positive viewpoint. I guess I touched on it briefly, but you know, I came from a disadvantaged background. I was the first one to go to university. I worked two jobs to pay for university. And I guess I've also experienced 14 suicides, three murders, six uncles were incarcerated. 
And, you know, the number of people that have had domestic violence and stuff, I could probably count on one hand the people who haven't experienced domestic violence. So kind of like that upbringing. And then when I was younger, I used to live next to a drug den. So like every day I'd kind of like deal with stepping over heroin addicts and that kind of thing just to get to school. So it was kind of like dealing with all of these different things kind of built a resilience within me. Mm -hmm. And so I realized that you have a choice. There's two ways you can think about the same thing. You can either allow yourself to keep thinking of the same negative thoughts over and over again and allow yourself to get defeated by the things that you can't change, or you can look at them with optimism. And so I try to look at everything with kind of like a blind optimism. And I guess that optimism is sometimes it's unrealistic, but that's kind of what's driven me this whole journey to do all the things that I've done. But in terms of like the fashion space, I have to say I do get disempowered every now and then. I'd say last week was one of those moments where I often feel like as a South Asian in this space, there is so much change and so much that we just have not experienced or been able to even access. Like the glass ceiling for us, it's so high. We can't even get to basic things that other people can do. For example, seeing Yasmin Gori come back to social media, I hope that's in action. But even then, Yasmin is someone who is not monoracial. She has white privilege. So again, if she does get all four big covers, what does that say to the South Asian identity? Well, you're bringing up something very important, which is obviously representation, but also the role a magazine cover plays in culture today. I mean, is that something that you still think wields a great deal of power? What are your thoughts? I think the role a magazine cover plays in culture today is actually quite significant because I feel it's the opportunity to not only like showcase a person, but it's also the opportunity to showcase people that have not always been visible. And that has a connection to society, culture, and belonging. And that goes straight into social, psychological, and economic effects for communities that are not visible. When people see themselves visible, they know what they can see they can be. And if they can't see themselves visible, how do they know they can be that? So it just empowers people in a different way. And so I feel like the role of the magazine cover can be used for such incredible positive change by inspiring people to be more, do more, and feel positive and comfortable with who they are and what they are. I often feel that as South Asian people, we also have to be exceptional to stand out. For example, if I didn't have all these accolades and awards and things that I have because of, I guess, my sheer determination to do them, would I even exist in the fashion space in this time? I don't think I would. Like as just a plain model, which I have tried, you know, many years ago, no one would give me a chance. It took me four years to get signed to an agency. And even after I was signed, I was let go. And then I took another two years to do my own thing and then get signed again to another agency. There's so many barriers that I see on a daily basis. And, you know, just today I got an email about one of my models and the email said, oh, sorry, the client has decided to go with a black girl like she's some disposable Indian. Do you know what I mean? Because of her race. And I'm okay when these things happen to me. Like I'm okay when I get an email saying, you know, the client has decided to go with an all white team or or, or, all black talent. I'm okay with it because I can deal with it. But when I see that happen to other young people from my community, it makes me angry. Like I feel like I have to do something about it because 
for so long, we just haven't had a voice and we keep getting silenced when we do. And why do you think that is? I just think it's because of the systemic lack of representation. There is no South Asians on the back end of most companies. There are no South Asians on the front end. You know, the only positions they have is like the occasional CEO here and there or the occasional investor. But as a race and a group, we've never been viewed as cool. Like when you think about South Asian male representation in television and media in terms of movies, we've always been the nerd, the unsexy friend, very unsexed. And as females, we've had the same perspective, but it was always kind of like the exotic other. And I remember watching a movie recently and the guy just described that he didn't have anything else to say about this Indian woman except that she had very soft skin and did tantric sex. And that's kind of the way South Asian people have been viewed as a cultural other. And even like, for example, I was watching Bridgerton recently and I was so happy over the moon when I saw that Ashley Simone got that role because I thought, you know, the first time it's going to be like South Asian people can do mainstream roles. But then when I watched it, because they intertwined her identity so much with culture, what I realized was you couldn't give that role to anyone of another race. And I feel like when you make positions and roles about a certain culture and intertwine it with race and religion, it's not really diversity. Like the role she should have gotten should have been one where her actual physical race and her actual physical culture doesn't matter. Like she could have done any role. Like for example, the black African and Caribbean actors in that show, they're not associated with tribalism or talking in African dialects. And yet these two Indian characters who are already so marginalized in film are only there because of their race. And then you have one of the actresses talking about in interviews that she feels, I guess, a little bit like an imposter because she feels she only got the role because of her race. And, you know, you have to have questions like, how is this increasing in inclusivity and belonging? I mean, everything you're saying makes perfect sense. I guess it leaves me wondering what the sort of solution. Sorry, I'm just angry. <laughs> no, no, all good. It's it's just fascinating because thinking about it through the lens of, I suppose, a Westerner and trying to distill uh, that into a list of reasons as to why things are the way they are. It reminds me of a conversation I'd had with an editor at a magazine in Spain years ago when I was curious as to why they didn't have people of color on the cover. And their response was that they didn't have the consumer demographic or the audience for that type of talent. It, it wasn't representative of their populace. Mm. And so if we kind of apply that to the larger conversation around global culture and global media and the roles and such that are given to South Asian talent, do you think they're few and far between because the narrative that South Asian talent represent is not as common or doesn't have as large of a share of voice in the cultural discourse? I mean, what are some of the reasons that inform that? I think that's a really good question. And for me, I think there are a couple of different issues. So the first is as a group, 
South Asians kind of haven't mobilized. There's still historic barriers between Pakistan and India and Bangladesh and Sri Lanka. And it's this new generation that's trying to break those barriers and really create this idea of community, um, you know, the brown community. So I feel like that's something that has limited access as well. But it's also to do with the way South Asians have been perceived historically in that it's always been based off ethnographic imagery. It's always based on what the photographer who could go to India on his thousand dollar budget for a month could photograph. And that was usually slums and people on the street and locations that were like high intense culture in terms of the average person. Like they could never stay a night at the Taj Hotel, for example, and see that level of culture. So it was always kind of like localized to low socioeconomic poverty imagery. And historically, even, you know, just two years ago, images and fashion would just show Indian people as ethnographic characters. And you still see it, you know, showing ethnographic imagery of South Asians. And I don't understand why South Asians can't be depicted without ethnographic imagery. Why can't they just be depicted as a single South Asian person or not even a South Asian person. Why can't a South Asian person just be depicted like everyone else as everyone else? And I guess the third point is that historically as a group, we've never really had the chance to stand up for ourselves. Have you ever seen, I don't know, South Asians protesting on the street about something? It rarely happens unless it's a point at which someone was killed because of something that happened. And I think that kind of movement and that energy is really mobilizing right now. So that's why this change is happening in that way. And I guess back to the second point, ethnographic imagery and stereotypes is the why it exists. And people haven't had access to the new underground imagery and identity the way that young people from these communities define themselves as. It's being defined for them instead of them defining it themselves. So returning to the lens of optimism, possibility, and change, let's close this out with what your hopes are for the future with regards to all of these things we've discussed today. The thing that I would love the most is that every underrepresented minority in the world, every underrepresented ethnicity or cultural group can exist and have access with equality and equality that represents the Equality Act. Because I just feel like it doesn't reflect the current levels of equality of representation does not reflect, you know, a human rights perspective. It's literally just replacing one regime with the color, with another regime of a different color. It's not really changing anything for most of the world, literally. So I feel like in terms of optimism and change, I would love to see the kind of conversation of representation and diversity expand racially because there are so many groups that are still completely invisible and it's not okay. And in terms of change, I love that everyone loves to know more about how they can change and how they can be better and do things better in the world. So I feel like having conversations like this and creating and amplifying voices that have historically been unheard with a new perspective will really help to educate people and change the way they kind of act and do things. Because most of the time, realistically, People don't know what they're doing is affecting someone negatively. Only when they're told that it is, do they change that. Well said. As always, thank you so much for taking the time today and having this conversation. Obviously, these are some pretty big subjects. And as you mentioned, they're important ones to tackle. So I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of What's Contemporary Now. Special thanks to our show's producer, Cheyenne Asadi, Joseph Topmiller and Chase Coughlin of The Black Soft for the original theme music, and Aaron Marr for visual design. Subscribe now for a new episode each week, and for additional content, find us on social or at whatscontemporary.com.